Welcome to the Manor. Welcome to the Twin Terrors Macabre Manor of Mead, Metal, and Mayhem. I'm Jody. And I'm James. And we've got another special Halloween episode for you. And in this case, it's literally a Halloween episode. <laughs> so we've done a couple of episodes for anniversaries of, of a couple of things. 2018 seems to be the anniversary of a lot of movies or just things not necessarily movies because uh, we've we've done one for the the novel frankenstein and we've done one for night of the living dead this is also the 40th anniversary of the release of john carpenter's halloween dun, 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 dun. yeah I don't, I don't think that's how it goes no <laughs> not even close <laughs> yeah yeah well um suck up musicologists yeah Okay, so uh, the movie was originally released on October 25th, 1978, uh, I believe in Kansas City, Missouri. They uh, had to distribute it themselves because they couldn't get anybody to pick it up, and it didn't originally take off. I mean, it wasn't, you know, a smash it out of the gates, uh, not until in November when it was shown at the uh, Chicago Film Festival. In the commentary on the uh, Blu-ray, Carpenter said that the movie was originally panned by all the reviewers until a positive review in the Village Voice. So that review compared the movie to Psycho and John Carpenter's work to Alfred Hitchcock. Apparently, according to Carpenter, it was like all the, all the people who had already reviewed the movie and given it a bad review turned around and rewrote their reviews so that they were all positive. That sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. It was directed by John Carpenter, written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. Deborah Hill also produced it. John Carpenter did the music. Said to be inspired by Alfred Hitchcock and uh, Orson Welles' movie, Touch of Evil, uh, especially the, the tracking shot that opens the movie. Uh, Deborah Hill talked about it on the commentary. John Carpenter was using what they call a Panaglide, kind of a steady cam kind of thing. It was an early steady cam. Um, he used it for, uh, for a lot of the shooting, especially the point of view shots of Michael Myers walking around his point of view. She talked about how he used the Panaglide combined with rain to set the mood style and scares for the, uh, the scene early in the movie, not the opening scene, but early in the movie when Michael Myers escapes from the hospital. Now he was able to do that on a limited budget. Uh, yeah, but yeah. Was it, was this one of the first times this type of thing was used to get the point of view of the villain? I, yeah, I think so. Well, it, it definitely was one of the first times it was used to get a point of view of the villain. And that's something that a lot of critics of the movie or, or critics of the horror genre complained about later was that, by putting people into the point of view of the villain, you, you kind of make them start to identify more with the villain instead of, you know, the, the people that the villain's trying to kill. <laughs> I don't buy it because I didn't, I, I don't, you know, me personally, I don't have that issue. <laughs> I, you know, maybe some people do. I don't know. Uh, yeah, people have issues. Yeah. Yeah, they do. The movie was made for a budget of about $320,000. Started to say million. That would have been way off. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Carpenter said the movie came about from a conversation he had with producer Mustafa Akkad. Said he had met with him in England and Akkad said he wanted to make a movie with him sometime. And then went on to uh, say that a Hollywood producer, Erwin Yablons, told Carpenter he wanted to make a horror movie called The Babysitter Murders and, you know, had a budget of about 300000 300, yeah, $300,000 um, and asked Carpenter if he could do it on that kind of a budget. And Carpenter pretty much said, yeah, as long as you give me complete creative control. <laughs> <laughs> 
um, from what I from what I was understanding, it sounded like they went back to ACOD and got the funding, but in in a featurette that's included on the Blu-ray. Mustafa says that Carpenter and your blondes came to him with the idea already in place. They just really needed the financing. So I'm not, not sure which way that story actually goes, but there, that's kind of the gist of it. Your blondes actually was the one who came up with the idea of setting it on Halloween night and changing the title to Halloween. And one of the things he said in the featurette was that you know, he came up with this idea of doing it on Halloween and he thought, well, maybe we could make that the name of the movie. Surely somebody in Hollywood has already done a movie by that name. So I'll look into it. And not only had no one done a movie up to that point that was named Halloween, no one had done a movie with Halloween in the title at all. I mean, even as part of the title. I hear that bit of trivia all the time and it still completely takes me by surprise. Because yeah, yeah, that seems like you would think that by 1978, somebody would have done something with Halloween in the title. So, but yeah, he said he researched it, couldn't find anything that referenced it. So it was filmed the spring of 1978. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis actually, uh, in her commentary on it, she says they filmed it in March in Pasadena, California. But uh, some other stuff I found said that it actually was started filming in May. But it was still uh, spring of 1978. It was supposed to take place in the fictional town of Haddonfield, Illinois. Uh, Deborah Hill said that it was named after Haddonfield, New Jersey, where she grew up. Uh, she also said that after the movie was a hit, rumors sprang up that the story was true and that the house existed. <laughs> <laughs> it's also very obvious uh, when you watch the movie, Jamie Lee Curtis, when she was talking about when they filmed it, she was talking about it during the scene where her character, Lori Strode, is walking down the street carrying a pumpkin. She's waiting on a street corner for a friend of hers to come pick her up. She comments on how they made it look like a blustery fall day. And as soon as she said it, I, I looked and I went, yeah, but there's an awful lot of green in the trees and the grass. And, and, and she, she, she literally pauses and then points out that exact same thing. <laughs> Except for that. And, yeah. And this. Yeah. Man, some of that over there. Um, and the fact that they filmed it in, you know, Southern California, they had to make sure that they tried to block out all the palm trees that were in the neighborhood. Because <laughs> you don't get palm trees in uh, Illinois. No. no. So the, uh, the house uh, that's seen throughout the movie, that's in a rundown state through most of the movie, that uh, is, is the Myers house where Michael Myers murdered his sister Judith and all that at the beginning of the movie. According to Jamie Lee Curtis, it was throughout most of the movie, it was in that dilapidated state while they were filming. I and mean, it wasn't until they actually, the last bit that they shot was the opening sequence. So before they, they shot it, they had to go in and paint the walls and everything to fix it up, at least the, the rooms they were using so they could do the interior shots. Neat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When they hired Jamie Lee Curtis, originally she was not John Carpenter's first pick. He originally wanted Annie Lockhart, daughter of actress June Lockhart. And Annie Lockhart was known for her role as Lieutenant Sheba on the original Battlestar Galactica series. She turned down the role to play Laurie Strode. So they, then they offered it to Jamie Lee Curtis. And uh, Deborah Hill said that she felt that there could be a really positive spin or a story on having the daughter of Janet Lee from Psycho as the heroine of the movie. 
you know, so she she was really excited about, you know, being able to, to cast Jamie Lee Curtis in the role. And Jamie Lee Curtis also said after her first day of filming, she thought she did horrible and went home, thought she was going to get fired, like, Im- immediately. And John Carpenter actually called her that night, you know, and her, her roommate answers it and gives her the phone and everything. She's expecting to be fired. And he's like, no, 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 you were great. <laughs> <laughs> So the the movie obviously has had some detractors over the years. Uh, there have been com- some complaints, and, and really, this is something that gets talked about in when you talk about slasher films. That the kids who die are the ones who are sexually promiscuous, are drinking, or doing you know drugs or whatever. And a lot of people who point to that say that this movie was one of the first ones to do that. And you know because Jamie Lee Curtis's character Laurie Strode is virginal and even though she does smoke a little pot at some point in the movie she's not you know really doing a whole lot of the other stuff that the other girls are doing and you know john carpenter and uh, deborah hill both kind of kind of shoot that down Uh, carpenter discussed those complaints and you know he said he wasn't making a moral comment it wasn't about morality he said the reason that those girls die or those kids because actually one of the victims is a guy he says because they're too busy doing other stuff to look around and see what's going on and that That would make sense yeah, the character Laurie is the only one who who pays attention, who watches. I think in in the commentary he refers to her as a watcher, and then Michael as a watcher. Yeah, that's a lot. That's the majority of the movie. I mean, it really it's not until the last half hour or so of the movie that people start dying. Well, you know, with, with the exception of the opening scene. Aside <laughs> <laughs> from that, yeah, yeah. Aside from that. But uh, yeah, here, here's, uh, I got a quote from uh, Carpenter on that. The, the idea that she's the one who, uh, the only one who can see the shape, as Carpenter refers to Michael Myers, um, comes from the idea that because of her repression, perhaps her shyness, she has the instincts and the ability to watch. She's a watcher, just like the shape is. In the Night of the Living Dead episode, we talked about how George Romero never referred to the risen dead as zombies. When he referred to them in the movie, they're never referred to as, they're referred to as the risen dead or whatever. But outside of the movie, uh, George Romero always referred to them as as ghouls. And uh, John Carpenter does the same thing here. Yes, Michael Myers had a name, but to Carpenter, he's he's the shape. And that's how Carpenter referred to him throughout the commentary. And actually, everything I've ever seen him do, that's mostly how he refers to him. And Jamie Lee Curtis actually echoed this thing that I was just talking about before that, about Laurie's repression and shyness. And because of that, she tends to watch things more. So speaking of The Shape, uh, The Shape was played by Nick Castle, which I didn't realize until I was doing research on this. He directed the movie The Last Starfighter. Oh, neat. Yeah, I did a movie I love. One of my favorite sci-fi movies. If you've not seen The Last Starfighter, check it out. It is an excellent movie. Maybe somewhere down the road we'll do an episode on that one. But, but yeah, Nick Castle, was he was trying to get his own films off the ground, and he knew John Carpenter. He was a friend of, of his, and he would come down to the set and hang out and ask if there was anything he could do. And Carpenter said, yeah, why don't you put this suit and this mask on? <laughs> 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 Am I going to get paid? You'll get paid scale. <laughs> So he got paid like 25 bucks a day. <laughs> well, you know, but yeah, 40 years ago. Yeah. But was still uh, nothing. yeah, yeah. But yeah, that was, he, he was a friend of John Carpenter's, uh, had gone to USC with him. Another movie he did uh, was in the nineties. It was Dennis the Menace based off of the comic strip. And uh, he was a co-producer on 
Hook, which I believe was, a, wasn't that a Spielberg movie? It had Robin Williams in it. I don't know if it's Spielberg. I just remember Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman being amazing. Yeah. Spielberg was involved. I don't remember if he directed, but I know he was involved. And I, I was thinking he directed, but yeah, Nick Castle was a producer on that one too. Do you know another uh, Lost, Last Starfighter? On Halloween 2, the guy who plays the main role in Last Starfighter has a role in Halloween 2 as Jimmy. Yes, he does. Uh, and oh, there was another thing I saw. The guy who played, uh, was it Greg? The, the, the lizard alien that is his co-pilot in The Last Starfighter? He's um, in Halloween 3. He's in Halloween 3, yes. That's right. Yeah. So, see, there's all these Last Starfighter connections, too. So it's, yeah. <laughs> So uh, something else Nick Castle did on the production. In one scene, there is some background music. It's while Lori and her friend Annie are driving around. And the music, uh, I don't remember the title of the song, but the music is played by a group called the Coupe de Ville's, featuring John Carpenter, who has this habit of doing a lot of his own music for his movies, Nick Castle, and Tommy Lee Wallace, who was one of the film's editors. And I think he did some other stuff too, uh, like uh, production designer or something like that. So yeah, that was something else that uh, Nick Castle was involved in was, uh, was that one song. Carpenter was talking about uh, Nick Castle in the role. He said, uh, he's Castle asking how seriously to play the mental illness of, of Michael Myers. And uh, Carpenter said, he has a certain stance and move that I like, uh, that I think was never captured in, in any of the other films. Is that those movies use actors or stuntmen that, that didn't quite have the, the grace of movement that I thought Nick did. I'm not sure, because that was mostly Carpenter's quote, and I'm not sure where he went from the mental illness thing to how the guy moved. <laughs> he just, he literally, he just kind of jumped into that. Um, so he, he never really got into the thing about how seriously he wanted him to play the mental illness. But uh, Castle's father was a choreographer for Fred Astaire. Wow, that's some good dancing. Yeah, so that's kind of, I guess that's where his, some of his, the fluid, fluidity of his movement came from, I, I guess. Having watched it, finally having watched this for the first one all the way through, instead of catching it, you know, like that last <laughs> half hour like I typically used to, and having watched the others, I, I kind of think I get why carpenter felt that way it does seem like he it seems like he moved better he, he had just there there was a more fluid movement to what he did I, there's the the scene where he where he kills the the one guy i said that he did kill bob and uh he he, he kills him in the kitchen and he's he basically he's pinned him to the wall with the knife and uh, uh of course the guy's about six inches up off the ground where he picked him up before he stabbed him and pinned him to the wall he just, he does this really subtle move where he just kind of cocks his head to one side like he's a dog, you know, you know how dogs will kind of do that when they look at you sometimes, they'll cock their head to one side. Yeah. 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 He kind of does that. <laughs> he just, <laughs> but he, really that was, that was one of the few apparent um, directions that Carpenter would give him. And just yeah, tilt your head to one side because he'd he'd be like, well, what's my motivation in this scene? He'd go, your motivation is to walk from this mark to that mark. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you got it, boss. So uh, the movie also stars uh, Donald Pleasance. Funny enough, uh, this was one of the it wasn't necessarily the first time that Donald Pleasance played a non-villain, but he had a tendency to get cast 
as a villain prior to this movie. He played uh, Dr. Loomis, who had been Michael's doctor when he was in the mental institution. One of his uh, more memorable roles uh, was Blowfield in the James Bond film You Only Live Twice. So, yeah, he usually, uh, you know, up till this point, was usually cast as a villain or someone who was insane. Um, he, yeah. What James? <laughs> <laughs> uh, apparently, though, after Halloween came out, Donald Pleasance had problems getting cast as villains after that. <laughs> huh. Everybody wanted to cast him as a more heroic character. <laughs> but I'm a good villain, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The role of Dr. Loomis had been offered to Peter Cushing, who had <laughs> just been in Star Wars. And I, I've heard two different things on this. He turned it down because they didn't offer him enough money or they turned him down because he thought it was just going to be a really bad low budget movie. I don't know. One of, one of the two, but he did, he did turn it down. They also offered it to Christopher Lee after Peter Cushing turned it down. And Christopher Lee turned it down, didn't really give a reason why. I guess later, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill ran into him, and he said that he, he regretted having turned that role down. Okay, so the, uh, the character Annie... Uh, was played by Nancy Loomis, uh, no relation to Dr. Loomis. Um, in real life, she was actually married at the time to Tommy Lee Wallace, who I, I mentioned previously. So, and another character, uh, Linda, was played by PJ Souls. She had been in the movie Carrie, and Carpenter apparently actually wrote the role of Linda for her after he had seen her in Carrie. She, at the time, was married to Dennis Quaid, and they tried to get him to play the role of Bob, Linda's boyfriend in the movie. And uh, he had other commitments. He couldn't do it. And the character of Bob plays such a small role in the movie. I didn't really write down anything out, down about him outside of, you know, <laughs> that he got killed. So for a, uh, what's considered one of the, not necessarily the first, because Texas Chainsaw Massacre and there's, uh, I think the movie Black Christmas are probably considered two earlier slasher flicks. This one is generally considered the beginning of the slasher flick craze that's happened in the 80s because after this you get friday the 13th you get nightmare on elm street in comparison to those movies though there's very little violence and very very little blood it's not gory at all they intentionally did that toned down the uh, the amount of violence in the film why why would they do that because they wanted to to, to build the suspense more and use the suspense well, yes. that just seems silly. Why would you want suspense and some thought and, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> We've talked about that. And I, uh, something that I didn't, I, I tried to articulate and didn't articulate as well as I wanted to, because for some reason I was having an Alzheimer's moment and I was forgetting a word. And it's really silly that this was a word that I forgot. It's um, a bird? Uh, no. Um, so bird's not the word? No, bird's not the word in this case. In, in the Frankenstein 200th anniversary episode, we were talking about the difference between horror and terror and horror being more disgust or revulsion that it, it invokes. And what I wanted to say, and I, I literally, this word just would not come into my head. Terror invokes fear. And that's the difference between the two. And uh, Deborah Hill pointed out that that's what they were. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to be scary, not gory. And then she even points out there's a difference between the two. Yeah. Because there is. 
Yes, there is. And I, I would agree, you know, we've talked about this before the movies that go more into that terror and invoking fear instead of invoking disgust or revulsion are the ones that you and I tend to think are better. Well, you know, it's just easier to appreciate it on a fine. Non- <laughs> <laughs> the music outside of that song that I mentioned earlier, the, the main music, like the theme, the music was partially inspired by, uh, I've always pronounced this name Dario. Uh, I think Deborah Hill pronounced, uh, said Dario, uh, but Dario Argenta, his movie Suspiria, which I've, I have seen. It's been a good, probably 15 years since I've seen it. So, uh, I don't really remember anything about it outside of, I, I enjoyed the movie, but I, I, yeah, I don't remember the music well enough to be able to say, yeah, that's, I remember that sounds like something they got it from, but you know, the, the Halloween theme, it's got that, it's, you know, played on piano and it's got that really neat, you know, or unique rhythm to it. Car- Carpenter talked about that. He said that when, when he was young, his dad had bought him a set of bongos and never really learned to play them outside of something that his dad showed him. His dad showed him how to play a, a rhythm in five, four time. And pretty much that's what he did was he took that rhythm in five, four time, and played it on the piano. Yeah, there's the, when you mess up time signatures like that. When people are used to four four time, it really starts to to grate on people's nerves and sort of get yeah. under their skin a little bit, which also is a nice thematic. Yeah, in fact, Carpenter talked about an executive, I think at Fox, who saw a cut of the movie before the music was added, and she just kind of looked at him and went, "It wasn't scary." And then she saw it again with the music. And completely changed her tune on it. Came back and said, yeah, that definitely was scary. So, yeah, the music played a big part. Yeah, definitely the time signature plays a big part of that. So, uh, something I thought was really cool, Deborah Hill was talking about. After the movie took off and started to become popular, she went to go see it in a theater with a regular, what she thought apparently was going to be a regular audience. Now, they weren't, it, it wasn't quite the same, but she said it was a lot like going to see Rocky Horror Picture Show. Not that, <laughs> not that people were dressing up, but that they were interacting with the movie, that they were yelling out the lines, they were yelling at the characters on screen. She said it just reminded her a lot of the Rocky Horror audience. Yeah, I didn't dress up for uh, Halloween at any time. No. Well, for the movie Halloween, I dress up for Halloween every year. Yeah. So the character of uh, Michael Myers, or the shape, Deborah Hill said, the idea of the evil character, which is Michael Myers, came from the idea of a man in a mask, and behind that mask, some horrific event was so frozen in the man's psyche that he had to recreate that for himself. And so the idea that he was pure evil and that he only got even more evil as time went on. Carpenter said the scene where uh, Dr. Loomis is telling the sheriff about the first time he met Michael Myers, um, he said the story that Donald tells here was something that I experienced when I was a student at Western Kentucky University. For one of our classes, we made a trip to a mental institution, and I saw a boy that day that fit the description that Donald is giving. The kid I saw the day I went had the devil's eyes. He stared at me with a look of evil, and it terrified me. So I was able to utilize the experience in Donald's dialogue. And, you know, really, that's pretty much what he says is that Michael's supposed to be this embodiment of evil. And, you know, at the end of the film, they do this montage, you know, already established that even though he's been shot like six times and stabbed three times or something like that, 
you know, they, they make a point of showing the body laying there on the ground. And then when Dr. Loomis looks over the balcony, the body's gone. And as they get ready to run the end credits, they do this kind of a montage shot of all the, all the locations where he had appeared throughout the movie, especially in that last, you know, bit of the movie when he's attacking everybody. And, you know, Carpenter kind of talked about how he's, he's not there, but yet he still is there. And, you know, kind of the same thing with evil, that it's always there. Of course it is. Evil always triumphs because good is so stupid. <laughs> uh-huh. But, you know, uh, Deborah Hill, she also kind of, I think, talked about that, um, you know, talked about growing up in the 50s uh, and, and how it was a lot safer, uh, how, you know, how the world just seemed different then. You know, then they had the fear of communism. You didn't see it or hear it. It, it wasn't like the guy down the street. Uh, you grew up with the fear of the nuclear bomb, which you couldn't see. What they did in this movie was, and I think somebody, and I don't remember if it was in the commentary or if it was in the featurette, somebody also talked about in older horror movies, the evil was always in some remote castle or, you know, it was it was always some someplace exotic, you know, something like that. Halloween brings it into the suburbs. It brings it into your backyard. It brings it into your street. And, you know, to, to say that nowhere in the world is safe. It's always out there. Yes. Yes, we are. Uh, um, <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. So uh, John Carpenter had this to say on horror. And I, I think, you know, what we just said on horror and terror, I, I think it plays more towards terror. But since everybody considers this the horror film genre, uh, Carpenter said horror has a job to do. Uh, a lot of times people ghettoize horror. They don't respect it. They think it's like pornography. You shouldn't be doing this stuff. But really there's a function to it. If you can scream and be frightened in a theater in safety, you come out into the real world and sleep peacefully. And you've had a catharsis. You've had an experience that made you a little bit better. You can survive the night. You can survive the terrors of the world. So yeah, I think that that kind of plays back into the, you know, the the whole thing of, yeah, even though it comes to the suburbs, you can still survive it. Yeah, there's a future podcast there on how heavy metal is actually a catharsis for that same reason. Exactly, yes. One of the scenes in the movie, near the end, uh, when Lori is babysitting, uh, she's babysitting a little boy named Tommy, who's about eight years old, and TV's on. And of course, it's Halloween night, so they're showing horror films, and they're showing old black and white horror films. And the movie that comes on is the Howard Hawks film, the thing from another planet. Now, do, you, do you know where I'm going with this? I do not. Okay. Carpenter said that the shot that's in the movie of the title coming up on the TV screen was actually his, his personal copy of the movie um, on his TV, I guess at home. In 1982, uh, four years after Halloween was made, Carpenter would release a remake of The Thing from Another Planet, titled The Thing, which is a more faithful adaptation of the original John W. Campbell novella, Who Goes There, which both films are based on. That's where I was going with that. Well, hot damn interesting. Yeah. Um, I, know, I did not see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently John Carpenter liked to scare people. He got that, um, he said that when he was about four, his mom took him to go see... It came from outer space, which was apparently a 3D movie. And I guess early in the movie, there's this uh, scene where a, a meteor is coming straight for the camera and then blows up. And uh, he, he got scared. But then he realized, hey, I'm safe. I'm in this movie theater. 
But then he wanted to rec- recreate that emotion in other people. <laughs> <laughs> so sweet. What a, yeah. what a nice guy. <laughs> uh, he said he thought uh, part of the reason for the film's success was that it came out around the same time as the Jonestown Massacre. Hmm. Trying to think of why people knowing a bunch of people really died would make them want to go watch people die on screen. I, well, I don't know. It could be that. that Catharsis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The catharsis part of it. Yeah. And and I I mentioned this a little bit ago. He talked about how it brought up a lot of imitation. Friday the 13th, fairly fairly obvious. They began to become more and more grotesque and violent. uh, And they lost sight of character. Uh, They lost sight of tempo and timing and became something called splatter movies. In that same vein, Jamie Lee Curtis said she doesn't consider Halloween to be a uh, splatter movie. Jamie Lee Curtis and John Carpenter both point out that it's something that belongs more to the uh, to the imitators. Deborah Hill said she thought that either the audiences became more sophisticated or the studios got scared, and that's why the movie started to become more violent and bloody. See, that's just that you start with something and it just keeps going further and further because yeah, you get immune. Or you, at the end, you start trying to push the envelope a little bit, but... You know, like Carpenter was saying, though, when you when you start getting the marketing people involved in it and they start saying, oh, you know, you need to do this, it turns into a formula. Jamie Lee Curtis talked about how, I guess, a lot of people consider horror movies to be exploitation kind of films. She said she never felt exploited. She never felt exploited in any of the films that were supposed to be exploitation films. She never had to get naked in any of those. You know, she never really felt taken advantage of, but she said... It was it was the mainstream, supposedly legitimate films that she did that she felt were more exploitive of her. Uh, she said, I think one of the first movies she did that people considered legitimate film was she played uh, Dorothy Stratton in the movie Death of a Playmate. So as I mentioned earlier, John Carpenter had, had said that about uh, being able to survive the night. Later on, he, he kind of makes that point again, but this this will tie back into something that we talked about, I think in the first episode, uh, when we were talking about the Hobbit, because yeah, I, I remember we kind of talked about how Tolkien didn't want Disney to get a hold of his films because he did not like what Disney did to fairy tales and how they sanitized them and made them uh, all cutesy and took all the, the dark elements out of them. But what Carpenter said was, if there's any point to be made in the film, it's that you can survive the night. But I think everyone in the audience would say that being aware of the possibility of evil is an important thing in life. All children need to be told that the world can be bad and dark and dangerous, but with a little luck and awareness, you can survive. And, you know, again, that goes back to, I think you were the one who said it in in the Hobbit episode where, where Tolkien felt that kids needed to know these fairy tales in their original forms. Um, yes. So that they knew about the bad things in the world. And I would agree with that. I would too. One of my favorite quotes. So it's always attributed to Neil Gaiman for some reason when I see it, but it's not. It's G.K. Chesterton. And it's uh, fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us dragons exist, but because they tell us dragons can be beaten. Yeah, like that. One last little thing on uh, Michael Myers or the shape. The name Michael Myers came from the name of the British distributor, uh, the guy who, I guess, ran the d- distribution company for uh, Carpenter's film Assault on Precinct 13. His name actually was Michael Myers. And a lot of the characters in the movie were named after people that Carpenter had known through, throughout his life up to that point. He, he was also partially based on Yule Brenner's character in the movie Westworld. Not the TV series that's on now, but the, the original movie that the series is based on that came out back in the 70s. Yeah, which I've seen. 
And apparently, uh, I guess that character was a robot. And he was kind of unstoppable. He was this unstoppable killing machine, literally. <laughs> He's a robot. Ah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Ah. You've seen the movie, though, right? I mean, you've seen it all the way through? I have. It's been a while, but yes. Yeah. You know, like I said, I just finally saw it for the first time last night, all the way through, or, or relatively all the way through, as I was pausing it while listening to the commentary and making sure I had stuff written down. <laughs> <laughs> having to back up so it took me a while to get through it thoughts on the movie in general i liked it i i I do agree it's not a slasher it's more intense and it's i I haven't seen it for i mean 20 years probably but i enjoyed it i thought it was really good i would watch it again i just don't tend to watch a lot of movies over and over uh, any movie except for a handful so Actually, I'm starting to get more of that way myself. But yeah, I, uh, I I did. I enjoyed it. Of course, like I said, I, I kept seeing like the last half hour or so of it over and over and over again over the years and definitely prefer it over all of the sequels that I have seen. So anyway, that's, uh, that's our episode on the 40th anniversary of John Carpenter's 1978 film Halloween. Hooray! Hope you, yay! Hope you enjoyed it. Um, if you've not seen the movie, you know, like I said, not a lot of violence, not a lot of blood there is a lot of suspense so if you're into that style of movie probably appeal to you if you've not seen it yet so uh, yeah check it out if you haven't already and if you have hope you enjoyed it hope you enjoyed this episode and we will see you later yeah i'm jody i'm james beam me up scotty the macabre manor is brought to you by the twin terrors all rights reserved stay tuned for some fun outtakes what's it huh that's some good coke. Oh, okay. Because uh, I'm going to try and hit on everything here. Um, yeah, like Thompson. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Poor everything. Thompson's trying to hit on it. Yeah, get off. That's what I'm yeah. trying to do. Ew. <laughs> so, okay, so basically, well, no, I'm not going to tell you what the plot of the movie is. Watch the movie. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah um yes oh i just had it Son of a bitch. here we go i had to get a reference in there <laughs> oh yeah because i completely left out the thing about the mask <laughs> yeah. yeah sorry all i have in me is uh mel brooks and in space balls <laughs> hello my baby hello my honey hello my right time gal if you've never seen space balls i'm not going to spoil that one for you you've got to see that scene on your own it'll be towards the end wait yep. for it oh yeah <laughs> uh, it was I, I will say this it was a nice little uh, michigan j frog reference in that movie and if you don't know who that is you suck <laughs> Oh, yeah, because that's one of the classic Looney Tunes cartoons. All right, you don't suck. You just you need to be better educated in the ways of Warner Brothers. Yes. Music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and another reference to Romero. Uh, Carpenter said that um, Romero told him that uh, film critics would would come down to visit him, visit him on the set and uh, immediately want to be cast as a zombie.